So what we're trying to do is replenish and reuse more water than we're taking in. So the way that we're doing that is largely through partnerships with groups like water.org. And so in the areas where we operate, and even in water-stressed areas around those areas, we're investing in new water replenishment projects to try to get water back into the environment. So that's really how we're doing it. Now, besides that, we're also doing the other things like trying to be responsible stewards of how we leverage water in groups like our data center, in areas like our manufacturing process. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore, joined today by Matt Colicella, who is in for Chloe Guidry-Reed. We're joined today by Matthew Sicole, Global ESG and Sustainability Advisor at Microsoft. Matthew is, as he says, a benevolent troublemaker with over 20 years of experience pioneering disruptive sustainability strategies. Matthew also has a newsletter called The ESG Advocate and is currently working on a new book that empowers companies to think through ESG issues to ensure their business is around to solve some of the business world's most pressing challenges. Welcome to the show, Matthew. This is a huge topic and so glad to have you join us today. Thanks, Adam. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. So glad to have you. So glad to have you. I, I would love to have us start, as we do with many of our guests, asking how you came to the world of ESG, because probably while you were in college, starting out, thinking about the career ahead of you, ESG wasn't even ESG. It, it didn't exist. Those sort of strains of topics hadn't been put together under this, this large acronym umbrella. So tell us about your path to ESG and to Microsoft. Yeah, happy to. So yes, ESG was indeed not a thing when I was in college, which was in the late 90s. And I was pursuing a liberal arts degree at Penn State at the time, I did have a little bit of early exposure to diversity, equity, and inclusion at the university because I was asked to mentor first-generation uh, urban kids coming into, I went to Penn State Berks, which is in Reading, um, from mostly Philly, Philadelphia and the Red, Reading area. Early on, I was intersectional with this, but honestly, it wasn't until hindsight happened that I realized what I was really doing at the time. Now, I graduated with an English degree, went and pivoted immediately, like literally the summer after I graduated into um, Microsoft. And I studied Microsoft certifications because I had a, I really was passionate about technology. So I took, yeah, I took my liberal arts skills, went into IT for about 15 years, then ended up at a Microsoft partner. But it wasn't really until I came to Microsoft in 2018 that I really intersected with this topic. Now, part of that was because Microsoft has a huge focus on all of these areas, but also I started covering financial services and I was connected in with the world's largest asset managers and the world's largest ESG data aggregators and ratings agencies. And I hadn't really heard about ESG. Like I had heard about CSR and obviously understood values and value, but I had never heard of ESG before. (laughs) And so 
I started working with these companies on the topic. It's very intersectional with data, as you, as you, I'm sure know. So I really made a hard pivot towards ESG and sustainability. Now I became a capital markets industry advisor here, advising companies on their ESG data strategy, advising asset managers on it, hedge funds, private equity firms. And then the opportunity came to join a more commercial team at Microsoft focused on sustainability specifically. And so when that opportunity came up, I jumped at it, which was maybe about 18 months ago now. And I've been doing it full-time more so ever since. I love it. That is just awesome. Yeah, and ESG is one of those things like you you said, Matthew, none of us went to school and said, you know what, I'm going to wake up and be the next ESG guy, or I'm going to specialize in ESG. So that is absolutely fascinating how we kind of have these turns of happy providence where we kind of get thrust into this. So that's that was really cool to hear your backstory on that. I think that when you're in the world of ESG, you're not so much just an expert at these individual fields, but you're an expert at their intersection, which is a different thing. And you, and you talked a lot about those intersections. So I, I appreciate that perspective. So just to build on that, one of the things that I can't, I've come to understand in, in, I won't say how old I am, but in my age, is that my liberal arts degree does exactly what Matt just said. It Like having a liberal arts degree helps you break down the silos of a topic like ESG and find those connections between them to give you really a more, a better view into these topics or a more informed perspective on these topics, which is really what I try to bring to these companies as I go around and talk to them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's something I had never thought about until you just said that. And because my background is also in liberal arts, but that's true. I guess that degree does kind of set you up to be a little bit more of a researcher, inquirer, going through and trying to find the commonality in different things. So that's that's a very interesting perspective that I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about myself. Well, there you go. I'm glad to help you, Adam. <laughs> See, there you go. That's why we do this show, because we always meet interesting people <laughs> like yourself. And it makes you walk away from it going, huh, I got to go ruminate on that for a little while because I've never thought about it from that that perspective. So that's just awesome. But kind of talk to us a little bit about some of Microsoft's sustainability goals both for the long-term and the short-term. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of our listeners, because we have both small and diverse business owners uh, that listen to this show. We have other supplier diversity and ESG managers that listen to this show. And goals around ESG always seem to be a very interesting topic for our listeners because it's, in most sense, it's a very squishy metric right now. It's, it's kind of hard to, to get your hands around that. So I'd love to hear what you guys are doing. Yeah. From an environmental sustainability perspective, we've been at this for a while. We set our first carbon emission reduction goal way back in 2009, and we set an internal carbon fee or tax, depending on how you want to phrase it, for our business units way back in 2012. But yeah, but it was really in 2020 where things took a hard pivot for us. So early on that year, Our CEO, our president, our CFO, and our chief environmental scientist at the time launched this moonshot environmental sustainability commitment uh, set. So it covers really four areas. One is carbon negative by 2030, uh, zero waste by 2030, water positive, and I I can explain that we're not creating water, and then uh, ecosystems are protecting more land than we use by 2025. And these goals were really set 
with grounded in science, like we really wanted to set something that we thought was attainable. Now, carbon negative by 2030 means that we're going to have to actually remove some emissions from the atmosphere that we've put in, not only just getting to net zero, which is which is tough. And so one of the things that we've done is we created something called the Climate Innovation Fund. And that's a billion dollar investment over four years. We're about three quarters of the way through it, I think, at this point. And that fund is really strategic about investing in nascent technologies to help us largely meet that goal. Because to get to negative, you have to have technologies that don't exist today. And so like we've had some announcements this past year around Climeworks, which is the first commercial scale carbon removal technology firm. We were partnering with Helium Energy on some of their fusion energy that's not out yet to get contracts early as they develop the process, things like that. So it's, it's, it's not only the commitments, but it's what follows on to the commitments that we're also focused on. That that is so exciting and and almost sci-fi to hear hear about your investment in in fusion. I'm curious because of my past work on carbon sequestration through planting trees. Um, is Microsoft investing in in that as well as part of this plan? You know what? I haven't seen. There are some nature-based sequestration technologies that we are investing in. Okay. What I've seen is those have come up for us, for us specifically, I'd say in the last six to 12 months, Okay, nature-based removals, in other words. Um, but that's not, that is definitely not the only thing that we're doing. Like we're making all kinds of really cool investments. Like we're building a new campus in Redmond and we're trying to figure out what's, what's the carbon emissions from the concrete. And is there a green mm-hmm. Or is oh, there a wow. way to sequester in the concrete? We're building what I think is one of the U.S.'s largest geothermal wells for that. And, and I might get these numbers wrong. So I can look at you can look it up after. But I think it's like 150 wells that are going to eat the campus, this new campus. We do a lot of really innovative research and development type things because we want to do it because we've made these commitments. But we also want to help others see that the potential in these new technologies. And when we talk about technologies at Microsoft, it's largely cloud-based, it's our devices, it's our artificial intelligence, but there are non-digital technologies that we can take advantage of to really help us and the world meet its goals. Matthew, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role that leadership and culture play in making all of this happen? Because of course, you can't make investments like this without uh, incredible leadership, really visionary, visionary leadership. So can you just talk a little bit about that? And, and <clears throat> I guess I'm wondering, I think in some companies, the push for sustainability comes from the ground up in many ways. We, we hear about people needing to kind of skillfully convince leadership that they should invest more in sustainability as a company. And I don't think that that's the case at Microsoft. And I, I just love to hear about how that how that looks at Microsoft. Sure. So it's it's a little bit of both. I, I wasn't here when Satya came in, but I was in the partner network shortly after. And Microsoft is very much partner first and uh, because a lot of our technologies can't be implemented without partners, right? Like you need a partner there to help you. And we very much 
open the door to partners for our own objectives. So I got an early visual into what Satya was doing as he was kind of repivoting. And that's Satya Nadella, by the way, the, the CEO of Microsoft. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah, the CEO. And so from the top down, like, like I mentioned, our big moonshot commitments, CEO, president, CFO, chief environmental scientist, those were the four people who made the announcement at an event in Redmond. It was not just the chief sustainability officer. So very much we had leadership buy-in from the top. Now, most uh, observationally, most of our ESG-related programs roll up to our president, Brad Smith. So he has what appears to be direct accountability for things like our social justice efforts, our public affairs office, our environmental science team rolls up to him, things like that. So very much comes from the top down. But there's also this bottom up that's empowered by the leadership. So we have about 8,000 people in our sustainability connected community, which is employee led and run. Um, It's like an employee resource group focused on that topic. We also have many, many employee resource groups for different topics uh, around diversity, inclusion. Uh, one of my one of my peers on the sustainability team just got off of doing a stint as the leader of the military employee resource group. So these groups are the employee represent representatives who push things up to our leadership that maybe we should be focused on. Now, even with that kind of top down and bottom up approach. There's all sorts of things happening in the middle because a lot of companies today are based off of technology. And so what happens is our field, our our, frankly, our commercial sellers are working with companies to make differences all the time. Now, there's another layer to that, which is we because we're a material contributor to largely every economy on the planet, we have relationships with individual countries and the biggest companies in those countries. And so there's a program called the National Transformation Partnership that works with those countries and the bigger companies in order to have impact at the local level. Um, So all across Microsoft, um, and this is all besides running the business, by the way, all across Microsoft, you will find efforts. Hmm. That is absolutely amazing. And I love the intentionality behind it and how you guys are working to coordinate all these different silos together to obtain this objective. But we can talk about carbon neutral and even removing carbon and leaving it better, if you will, than the way we found it. But beyond just it's the right thing to do, how is Microsoft seeing this? And if you can't speak to this, seeing it benefit their business. Because at the end of the day, all of us still have shareholders. And at the end of the day, we still have Wall Street checking our numbers. So talk to us a little bit about some of the business benefits maybe you guys have seen. Yeah, sure. Well, so I can't get into tangible numbers. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. So I do sit on the commercial side. So I have this conversation a lot and we really break, we kind of break sustainability down into three buckets. And if I remember, I will circle back to the social aspect as well. Perfect. We try to run our cloud operations more sustainably than what we believe a company can run on-prem. And this this not only means things like sourcing green energy, renewable energy credits, and power purchase agreements, but it also means taking the time to architect the cloud so that it runs as efficiently as possible. Now, that has both 
cost savings for us and our customers. And it also has sustainability savings because when you're running things more efficiently, you're eking out as much sustainability out of the technology as possible. So what when I'm out talking with companies, I, I say to them, like, if you're going to build some technology and claim that it's running sustainably, like you probably want to pick a cloud provider that's running a sustainable cloud. And here's how we do. So that that is definitely one that has a business impact. Now, the second one is we've started commercializing some of what we're seeing out there, some of the trends. So we have a first party product called Sustainability Manager, which does disclosure and data tracking. Obviously, like I mentioned earlier on, this is a huge data problem. And so you need technologies available to deal with that data, which is our cloud solutions. And we also have something called the Planetary Computer, which is attempting to democratize access to planetary scale data sets so that you don't necessarily need a data scientist or a PhD on staff in order to try to address the most challenging climate risk models that you could build. Now, yeah, now the, the last pillar is every company and every industry has very unique intersections with this topic. And this is where the partner first really comes in. We partner with the advisories, with consultancies to go in and address kind of the transitional risks that exist out there. And in order to help those companies be more resilient, because frankly, if we're helping companies be more resilient, it also benefits us as well because they're they're able to survive. So those are kind of the three ways that we really talk about this uh, from a commercial perspective. Now, circling back on the social really quickly, one of the most interesting things I think about Microsoft is how we apply the social, but we don't necessarily talk about it as like, hey, we're solving some sort of social problem. So two, two examples I could give is one, we built, so as you know, we have our Office 365 platform, which is a collaboration stack. Well, in the last couple of years, we layered on something called Viva, which Viva gives executives insight into things like employee productivity, potentially burnout, how well different groups in the company are collaborating together in an in, in like an employee experience type environment. And it surfaces those that data to executives so they can say, well, hybrid work is working, hybrid work isn't working. Like it tries to surface those insights, which employees are one of your most important stakeholders. So it's very social intersectional. But the other thing that we do that I really like, I mean, we do tons of things, but the other thing that I really like is we've started adding accessibility features into Office as well as into some of our devices. So a couple of years ago at the Super Bowl, you may remember we had our accessible uh, Xbox controller, which I love that commercial, by the way. I think, oh, I can't remember the tagline. It's like when when we all play, everybody wins or something like that, which I just thought was- It was, I remember that commercial. It was very impactful. Yes. Well, we did, we took the learnings from that and also have added a Surface Adaptive Kit so that it, for the Surface devices like Surface Laptops, Surface Pros, things like that, which can make it a little bit more accessible. But also back to Office, like we've added things like real-time translation, uh, transcription, real-time transcription as well. So I was sitting, actually, we had an offsite last week and I was sitting behind somebody who had their, we were all in a room, it was like a hundred of us and they had their laptop up and they were reading their screen. And I thought at first they were reading a book, 
because like it was so strange. I'm like, what are they doing? They're not paying attention. And then I realized that it was the real time transcription in Teams and they were reading what the person was saying. Like it hadn't even occurred to me that that's what it was. Like that type of accessible technology is also a big intersection for us with the social, but also represents a commercial opportunity. Right. That's absolutely outstanding. I mean, that's just absolutely outstanding, but it kind of makes me think taking this and you guys have all this accessibility and you're doing a great job of, of all these different points of integration and really reaching out to communities in, in like we talked about with the surface and then with the, the tagline from Xbox, but coming back into kind of the ESG lens, how's Microsoft ensuring that that, that product accessibility for diverse communities and the promoting of diversity, equity, inclusion, just kind of within your own workforce. How are you guys handling some of that? Because that's also a component of, of this whole thing. So besides like the employee resource groups have a large part to play with it, to play on that. We are we also have an internal review process, like for performance reviews. Diversity, equity, inclusion is on every single person's <laughs> as a metric, like on every single person's performance review and they can write like how they contribute. So for example, I sit on the LP advisory committee of Morgan Stanley's next level fund, which invests in diverse led and founded startups. That is something that Microsoft funds. Um, This is from my time in capital markets. I brought it to treasury and they decided to invest in it. So like for me, that's something that I can add in as, Hey, here's how I'm contributing. I'm working with diverse founders at least once a month on what they're doing. Now, there's also internal training for things like allyship or for things like accessibility, especially from from the accessibility perspective, especially when it comes to things like product development, but also things like, as you can imagine, we build a million PowerPoint decks in Microsoft. I can only imagine what that looks like. Right. There's a lot. So making sure that those PowerPoint slides are accessible Mm-hmm. is something that we train our employees on, but also build into the tool. So there's like an accessibility checker that you can run on your slides and it will say like, hey, this you know, this is high contrast or low contrast, or this, maybe there's too many words on this slide, you should do something different. It's that type of stuff. So it's really integrated through training, our performance, but also the technology as well. And we give and we give our employees like like I was lucky enough to figure out how to do something like the next level fund. So we give our employees opportunities to participate in new and different ways. I'm curious how you're kind of rolling out these resources externally as well. Kind of going back to all of the like the sort of three pillars that you mentioned. Um, or the three the three pieces of technology that that you're offering the world. If I'm a diverse entrepreneur in the audience of this show, and I'm hearing about this, and cl- larger clients that I've had have asked me, "What are my sustainability practices? Can I report back to them my environmental impact, etc.?" And I run a, a smaller company. I really don't have a background in those things, but I don't want to be stopped from working with these larger clients. And I do care. How do I gain access to these things? I mean, even if you can point people in the direction of programs that Microsoft offers, how do I gain access to this as as an entrepreneur or small business owner? Yeah, absolutely. So 
what I'd say is, and Microsoft does this, and I've seen this with some of the other larger companies as well. We transparently publish out our supplier code of conduct, our sustainable procurement policy. We also have a diverse supplier statement, as well as we publish that information and it, the progress on various programs through several sustainability reports. So at Microsoft, a lot of companies have one CSR or one ESG report. We've broken it out into several. So we have, yeah, we have a sustainability report. We have a diversity, equity, and inclusion report, a sustainable devices report, which is really where if you're dealing with supply chain, that's a really good report to read because it deals with a lot of materials and supplier challenges, including things like forced labor, but also like the environmental impacts. But we've also written a white paper that's really worth a review called Developing a Sustainable Procurement Strategy. And this was put out by our sustainable procurement team, which not every company has one of those, but we we do. And we had them write a white paper on our approach, but it also talks about how we approach suppliers. And what I'd hope is that like Microsoft, a lot of the bigger companies will do engagement over divestment. And what that means is that we put together things like training programs, as well as transparent communications in order to enable our suppliers to meet the goals that we put forth. So some of the some of the goals that like for a company like Microsoft and for many big companies, most of our emissions sit in scope three. For us, over 95% of our emissions are in scope three, and most of those sit in our devices supply chain. So again, it's things like what goes into our data centers, our, our surface devices, our Xboxes, things like that. And so we require our most material direct suppliers to report into the CDP, and about 87% of them do. In 2022, we updated our supplier code of conduct to include independent third-party assurance of emissions, and to try to deliver a minimum 55% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030, which is a pretty big ask. But we don't just put those things out there, right? Our team works with our suppliers to make sure that they're enabled to do that, whether it's through our technology or not, or whether it's through advising, like, here's why this matters. Here's how this can make you as a supplier more competitive. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of those devices have way up, go way upstream to mining facilities and, and refineries. Now, our influence, we also recognize that our influence goes down as you go further up, like every big company. So we tend to scale out our impact through things like industry consortiums as you go further up because our influence isn't as high. And so we work with Again, governments of the world, policy, and some of the bigger industry consortiums to try to make sure that everybody's pedaling this bike the same way, if you will. No, that's that's amazing. And I love that degree of transparency by having the multiple reports. Because I think in especially in large companies, the temptation is to generate the CSR or the ESG report and you just kind of throw it all in there. It turns into ragu. It's it's all in there. But I love that strategy, and, I, and this is the first I know I've heard of it, of having the multiple reports for the different views, the different functions of Microsoft. That's awesome. So to have some conversational whiplash with you, Matthew, I'd like to go back to a statement you made kind of at the top of the show, and that was talking about being water positive. And one of the things we try to do on this show is 
when we hear new terms or we use industry and, and acronyms, we try to define them. Not just for us, because that's the first time I've heard of water positive. And I thought I was water positive because I tried to drink a gallon a day, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. And that is to define them for our listenership so that we're all better educated at the end of the show. So could you spend just a few minutes talking about being water positive? Sure, absolutely. So water is one of our most critical resources, obviously. Oh, yeah. And even in even in data center operations, water plays a big role. So, for example, uh, one of the things that we've started experimenting with is how to use like an enclosed system to cool servers using liquid and water, but also reducing the water usage as well. Now, for water positive, that's a tough one because, again, we're not magically creating water out of there. So what we're trying to do is replenish and reuse more water than we're taking in. So the way that we're doing that is largely through partnerships with groups like water.org. And so in the areas where we operate, and even in water-stressed areas around those areas, we're investing in new water replenishment projects to try to get water back into the environment. So that's really how we're doing it. Now, besides that, we're also doing the other things like trying to be responsible stewards of how we leverage water in groups like our data center, in areas like our manufacturing process. The thermal wells that I mentioned, for example, is predicted to to save over like 37,000 cubic meters of water per year. So it's, it's aggregating all of that effort as well into, well, hopefully we end up being more positive than we are negative. Now, there's even some stories, uh, I'd have to look. Some of our data centers, I believe, even have water collection, like from rainwater, like rainwater collection facilities as well. So that there's, what's fascinating about this place is the scale. Like when you start bringing, it's almost, you know what? Water is a great acronym for this. It's like drips of water into a bucket. And then at the end of the day, you well, by 2030, hopefully you have something that is water positive. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a great way of, of looking at that. Thank you very much for kind of walking us through that. I really appreciate that. Sure. So you talked a little bit about Microsoft supply chain practices and collaborations, but talk to us a little bit how those, those practices and collaborations support entrepreneurship. You talked about some of the funds that I know that you sit on the board with in our underserved communities and promote that inclusive economic growth. Because I think this green space, alt fuels, uh, ESG, CSR, there is, like you said, there's technologies that we need to accomplish these goals that aren't even created yet, which is going to create market. So what are you guys doing to kind of help our small and diverse businesses really show their entrepreneurial spirit in these different sectors? Yeah, that's a really good question because there's, and there's a lot. So we're, I'll start off with something really simple. So we're, we're just, yeah, we're just coming off a week where we had our global hackathon, which a lot of startups participate in. I I don't have the website, um, but it's a mix of like social entrepreneurs, internal people, startups, some of our engineering team all getting together. And some of the challenges are specific around sustainability, social justice issues, which is great. And some of those may become products for a startup or products for Microsoft. Who knows? Now, one of the other more interesting things that we're doing that I think also kind of flies under the radar, like accessibility, is our skilling initiatives. So 
What we do is we have at least at least three big scaling efforts out there right now. One is for cybersecurity. One is artificial intelligence. So there's a business school around artificial intelligence. And then just last November, we launched one for sustainability. And these are sometimes they're in partnership. You can also find training out on LinkedIn as well because we own LinkedIn. But these programs really help empower any individual to learn one of those topics and apply it to their business. So if you're if you're a diverse startup and you want to understand cybersecurity better, you can set your IT person, maybe you only have one, on the cybersecurity training and help them secure your business, which obviously would reduce one of your key risks and help you maybe be a little bit more resilient. Now, the way that we do this is really, there's at least two ways we do it. One is we publish, we just publish the scaling out. So it's free to anybody. Anybody in the world can go take it. But there's another way that we do it, which I think is a little bit more interesting, which is, again, we partner with governments, NGOs, nonprofits to take skilling initiatives into local regions, and we help communities build the skills that they need to achieve. So this may, and you can find videos online about this, but especially like groups, marginalized groups like refugees who enter a new country who want to contribute to that country productively, there's so there's such a, a dearth out there of technology jobs and even sustainability jobs now because it's become so hot that we're helping refugees gain new skill sets so that they can become productive members of society. So think about that skilling and how it can be applied to a startup. Like maybe you need to layer on some sort of artificial intelligence to your product or service. Well, go go take some Microsoft training. Let's see, <laughs> right. see, see if your product group can augment what you're doing. And these trainings are free? Yeah, yep. They're, they're all free. That is amazing. Yeah, and the key thing for diverse suppliers especially is in, in something like our AI business school, we have a responsible AI module because one of the things that we found is, and, and granted, the industry has found this, like there's there can be a lot of bias built into the data that informs and trains the models. And so we've added a responsible AI module so that those people can understand, well, look, don't don't go... Don't go running and spinning up AI models all over the place. There, there is a responsible approach that you need to take because of these risks. And we want to make sure that everybody succeeds and everybody has the opportunity to succeed without being caught in those pitfalls. Wow, that's awesome. And I like that. It's kind of like, I'm going to date myself by saying this, but anyway, like when VMware first came out and everybody was spinning up servers left, right, and center. And then finally, governors came along and said, oh, you might not want to do that, <laughs> right? I mean, we right. have rogue servers all over the place. But the same thing, I hadn't thought about that, but the same thing with almost rogue AI models. That's a fantastic call out and probably something our, our governance teams need to start thinking about. 100% total governance issue. As a matter, yeah, as a matter of fact, if, if you're an AI practitioner, you'll recognize data has governance. Like that's how the industry talks about it. It's data governance. Yeah. Yes. Matthew, this has been a fantastic episode today. And, and it's been so great to hear what you and Microsoft are doing, but kind of as a closing question, mm -hmm. ESG and CSR sometimes is just one of those topics that people are like, I'm going to get to that sometime. And even I was one of those people when I first heard it in my 
time as a supplier diversity manager, I remember hearing Accenture talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm in banking. I don't need to worry about that. And lo and behold, <laughs> here it came my way. I was like, well, I should have seen the writing on the wall. And that's kind of our message to everybody. The writing is on the wall, everybody. But what would be some recommendations you would give to our entrepreneurs, supply chain managers, supplier diversity professionals that are listening to the show? They're looking to integrate these ESG considerations into their operations or their collaborations. So give us that parting shot of wisdom for our audience today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So for startups and, and smaller companies, it can be very difficult to navigate the requests that you're getting from your downstream customers on, especially like data requests. You do need to do that in order to stay competitive. So I would come up with some sort of streamlined process to at least gather your activity data and calculate out your environmental and social impact. However, I wouldn't be afraid to challenge or engage those downstream customers on why they're asking for the data. Because for example, if you're providing a financial service as a startup and they want to know your carbon emissions, that may not be the most material issue that you can report to them. And just engage them and ask them the question. Like if it's, hey, we want to make sure everybody's lowering their emissions because we all have this global challenge, great. If it's something else, you might discover that through asking the question. So don't be afraid to engage your downstream customers on why they're asking for this. In some cases, you may find they don't know why they're asking for this other than an investor (laughs) somebody told them. I have seen that scenario. Right. Now, the other thing that's really critical is CSR and ESG are a little bit different. CSR is more focused on saving the world and its people. ESG is more focused on saving your company. What I would encourage you to think about is the intersection of your startup or small company with these topics. Where is kind of the unique intersection of your business with these topics. It may not be carbon emissions reduction, which is on everybody's mind. It may be, maybe you're providing loans out to you know, anybody and you're missing entire marginalized communities because of some bias in an AI model and you need to focus more on people. Like every business has very unique intersections with this topic. Use those to augment and improve your business and build resilience and then come back and see where you can save the world. Because what that does is it gives you an understanding of ESG issues through the context of what you already understand, which is your business. And then from there, you can start saying, well, now now I get this topic, and now I can see different opportunities to help save the planet and its people. It's kind of, we're kind of, a lot of companies are coming at this backwards right now, but I really feel like that's the way to build a durable program around ESG and make it business relevant. See, that's what I love. And and one of the things we love on the show is that kind of simple KISS principle to these approach of highly complex, multifaceted topics. And, And I love the idea that you presented of kind of figure out where you fit in to the whole ESG story and be prepared to tell that tale because you might not be able to affect all facets of it. It just might not lend itself to that, but there is always something we all can do at some intersection of this entire initiative, worldwide initiative, that we all can take part of and make our own. That is, that's absolutely brilliant, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, that was one mic drop after another. <laughs> it really was. It really was. The whole show could have been this just last like four or five minute conversation and it would be one of our most popular. There you go. I love it. <laughs> Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such an eye-opening conversation and I feel really great about any purchase I make with Microsoft now. <laughs> from, from that one. This is just so, so eye-opening and, and powerful. And hopefully our audience also has taken away some of the programs that they can gain access to that Microsoft has to build their capacity in the area of ESG. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. For our listeners, please be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. You can connect with Matthew at Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, Sequel, S. E-K-O-L. And you can, of course, connect with our hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed, Adam Moore, and Matt Colicello uh, to reach out to us. If you'd like to be a guest, if you have ideas for show topics, please stay in touch. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, check out our previous shows, and stay tuned for next time. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.